Good morning. You can hear me okay? Excellent. I am feeling really excited this morning, um, mostly because of what's coming up afterwards, but also just to be in Amsterdam. It's always great to have an excuse to be here. So I hope that you're not terrified of getting a really boring talk about government, because I could understand why you would. Um, the good thing about where I work is that we're into revolution, not evolution. So this lady up the top here is, she's now Dame Martha Lane Fox. She was one of the co-founders of lastminute.com. You might know from the early, the, f the first big dot-com boom. You guys look like you might not have been around there. You're all very young. Um, so that, that, that's her kind of background. And the guy down the bottom is Francis Maud, who's the minister for the cabinet office, so quite a senior government minister in the UK. And he asked Martha to write a report about why was government not really getting the internet and technology in general right? So I don't know what it's like here in the UK and in Australia, where I'm originally from. Governments are kind of associated with this litany of IT failure. If you see a government project in the news, it's usually like deeply depressing, the amount of money and time that's been spent to achieve a massive failure. Um, so Martha wrote a, a very short and concise report basically saying you need to completely change everything. You need to actually build a team inside government who knows something about what the internet is and how to, how to make it these days. And you need to just take control of the way that you publish government information online and you need to get smart people to work in an agile and user-centered way on the transactions that we're making for people. And you need to be able to do this at scale. So everyone in government needs to be able to do this. And we need to be able to work out ways that small businesses and agencies and large companies and everybody can also help to do this. So this isn't something that government can do by itself. So. It's, it's not a boring place to be anymore. If you'd have asked me 10 years ago if I fancied working in, on the internet in government, I would have run screaming for the hills. But now, now there's some pretty cool stuff. If you've heard of our worker, or you probably know it for this, for gov.uk, how many of you have heard of this? Okay, so a few of you have seen it. For those who haven't, don't despair. I've got a very quick video that will catch you right up to everybody else. Hi, I'm Adi Adiwami. I work at the Government Digital Service, and I'm here to tell you about Gov.UK. Okay. We launched Gov.UK in October 2012. It replaced the two big central government websites, DirectGov and BusinessLink. The idea was to make something simpler, clearer and faster, something focused on users. Firstly, we took a careful look and worked out what services and information we actually needed to deliver. We thought, for instance, that we could probably stop spending taxpayers' money telling people how to have a when abroad, or how to identify different kinds of waves. We eliminated thousands of pages that no one ever visited. Then we made sure that the information we were providing was as easy to find and to follow as possible. This, for example, is the page on DirectGov that tells you about bank holidays. Now, it has all the information you need, and you'd think it'd be hard to do it better. But looking at how people actually use the site, we realised that what most people were searching for was the date of the next bank holiday. So we put that right at the top of the page, big and bold. We've done the same thing to more complex tasks, like working out how much maternity pay you're entitled to. Before, on DirectGov, you'd need to read all this information. On gov.uk, you just need to answer a few simple questions, and the site calculates the answer for you. 
In April 2013, we finished moving all departmental sites to gov.uk, together with the sites for Number 10 and the Deputy Prime Minister's office. So instead of every government page having a different design and different navigation, every site now looks and works the same way. At the same time, we've rethought how policy is presented online. Before gov.uk, if you wanted to understand government policy on something like gangs, for instance, you'd have needed to visit all these separate pages. Now, there's a single page for each policy, and all the departments involved share the responsibility for keeping it up to date. You can even subscribe to those policy pages so that you're always kept informed of any changes. And if you're responsible for a particular policy, you can find out how often it's being looked at and how closely it's being read. Today, gov.uk is handling more web traffic than the sites it replaced at a far lower cost, and users get to the information they need quicker than they did before. gov.uk is not perfect, and it's not finished. It's never going to be. It's designed to improve, to react to user needs. We've made thousands of changes to gov.uk, and we make small improvements almost every day. This idea, iterative, responsive change, is at the heart of everything we do. You should visit us at www.gov.uk. Hopefully, you'll see something you like. Something simpler, clearer and faster. So that's gov.uk. It's been a massive, massive project, literally taking hundreds of websites and bringing them into you know, one interface, one environment, um, <coughs> trying to find ways for people to navigate, find and navigate through that content, make sense of that content, working with hundreds and hundreds of people in government to teach them how to write good content for the site. Uh, it's, it's, it's a huge, huge project. And really, we're kind of only at the beginning of the journey now that we've almost got all of the content into GovUK. Now there's a huge amount of work to be done to make it perform and, and meet user needs even better than it does at the moment. So that's, that's, a, a, that's a big deal, I think. But it's only one of the things that GDS does. We, there's like eight separate functions of GDS. That's one of them. Another one, which I think is tremendously important, is the transformation project. So in the transformation project, what we're doing is working really closely with government departments. So the idea of the government digital service isn't that you have a bunch of people in the center of government who do absolutely everything, because there's so much stuff happening in government that, that would just, it's just not feasible for that to, to work. Um, and also, you'd end up with such a huge organization that it would be bound to get really rubbish again, like in the way that big organizations, just the bigger they get, the harder it is for them to stay smart and good. So we're, we're building digital teams out in departments, and we're working with them on, to begin with, 25 of some of the most important government transactions. So things like renewing your driver's license, or um, understanding about driving, or getting student loans, or you know, all of the kind of the big things, doing tax, all of the, the stuff that government's famous for. Um, so in these 25 transactions, what we're trying to do is trying to make at least 25 things that government does much easier for people to use and engage with. But, but possibly more importantly, what we're doing is we're working with departments to help them learn how to do this more than once. So we're not doing the fishing for them. We're trying to teach them how to fish. So that by the time we've done these projects together, they've got the kinds of teams in place who can then apply this to keeping the work that we've done really good and improving it, but also looking at all of the other stuff that that department needs to do as well. So giving them the ability to be agile, to iterate, to be user-centered, and to use kind of contemporary and appropriate technology, which 
compared to where they've come from and where some of them still are, is an enormous, enormous change. So the ability for them to actually own a transaction, see that there's a problem, and deploy a fix in a matter of kind of hours, which is what we do now. You have to compare that to what, what, the, what it's been like in the past, where you would have to, you, you saw that there was a problem, you'd write to a large systems integrating company for a quote. They would charge you to do the quote of what it's going to cost to do the thing. They would then charge you a ginormous amount of money to make the change and say you can probably have it in about six months. So that's, that's what normal used to be like. So that, this is you know, where we need to get to in terms of changing normal is just enormous. Um, so if any of you work for any of those large system integrating companies, I suggest that you jump ship and go work somewhere smart really soon. Um, taking them down. Um, Another, so, so that's, that's that, GovUK, huge thing, transformation, huge thing. This is my kind of pet project. This is what I joined GDS to work on, which is the identity project. And the idea of this is if, if you have a mantra which is digital by default, which ours is, then you know, if people are renewing their passports online, you need to be pretty sure that they are who they say that they are when they're at the other end of the computer. And that's actually a really hard thing to do, and it's a really hard thing to do in a way that the whole of, of society can make sense of and understand and use. Um, and we've got an extra special constraint in the UK, which is that um, British people are really not into identity cards. Uh, and as a sort of follow-on from that, that means that it's, it's not possible for us to have one database with all of the identifying information. So that makes doing identity really quite tricky. And so what it's meant is that they've, we've had to design a federated identity system where your identity is proved digitally by multiple different parties, and you as a citizen can choose who's going to do that. Um, and then you, know, you prove it up to a certain level, and then you can access the transactions that you or the information that you want to access. Even just describing that to you probably does your head in a little bit. So you can imagine what it's like trying to get a 60-something-year-old farmer in the middle of nowhere to understand how to get through this process so that they can get access to the, the EU subsidies that they need to be able to live on. So that's a, that's a huge challenge, but we've, we've, we've done it now, and it actually exists. For the first time in the world, apparently, one of these systems is actually being made and is being used in public beta, so the farmers right now are using this to start to get access to the EU subsidies. Um, it's like WK, it's a long way from finished. It's a long way from perfect. There's loads of problems with it. But it was on the front page of the Times last week. And so this is like front page news on one of the UK's biggest newspapers, a government IT program about identity of all things, and it was positive. That the press office didn't know what to do with themselves. They've never had that before. So, you know, again, it's not perfect. It's not perfect, but, it, but it's a... It's a, it's a it's a real paradigm shift. So this is our aim, is to make services that are so good that people prefer to use them. Not that they can choose to not pay their tax or pay their tax to a different government, but they can choose to do this on paper, or they can choose to do it on the phone. They can choose all kinds of ways that are much more expensive and difficult for us to process. But we want to make the digital services preferable to them so that they get a better experience if they choose to use that. And then we as taxpayers have to pay less to process all of these things as well. And making those projects is really, really interesting. But for me, the thing that I think is even more interesting, and what I want to talk about today, is what, how do you get to the point where you, like, you know, the old normal to now when we can kind of reliably do good digital services? 
right? So reliably before, we would fail at IT badly. And now we're almost at a point where we can kind of count on the fact that we will start to do it right. How th th that's, it's like changing like the DNA of the organization, really, so that they can start to become good product makers. And I think that's really interesting. There are loads of things that you need. Um, having somebody like Francis Lord go and talk to somebody like uh, Martha Lane Fox and get a report is very, very useful. So that's like proper support from the top. We have a, a, a minister in government who stands up in parliament and talks about user needs. That's phenomenally helpful. We can't do anything about that today, but I think there are, I've got four things that I think you can start doing today that can help to shift your organization into a better place around being good product makers. The first one is more showing and less telling. So this is like part of the DNA of, of government digital service. We talk about show, don't tell all the time. And basically what it means is that you just spend way less time talking about what you're going to do and how you're going to do it, and you spend more time doing it and then showing it to people. Um, and so what this means if you're working in digital is that you, you can't have a big gap between the people who are doing the design and the strategy and, and the planning and the people who are doing the technology. They have to be co-located, they, they have to work closely together. They ha you can't have this kind of situation where the, the developers are an enclave somewhere over there who only get to touch the stuff once everything's been decided. They have to be a part of the team from the very beginning. You get a lot of benefits from that. But the first one is that you can, you can make stuff really quickly. We've got silly posters up all the time. Show the thing. Um, and that is just like a really regular reminder that keeps saying to us, you know, we don't, we, we, what you say you're going to do means nothing. We've got no currency. It's got no value. The only things that we really care about are stuff that you're actually doing, stuff that you can actually show. And this has been in the, like the, the, the DNA of GDS from the very beginning. So this is a screenshot of AlphaGov, so the very first version of GovUK that was built by a small team of designers, developers, content people, delivery managers, that kind of group. They had, I think, about like eight or ten weeks to put this together. And they could have sat down and done the typical government thing and kind of write a little, like a huge business case and do lots of kind of modeling and all kinds of kind of crazy stuff and present a big slab of paper that loads of people would then argue about interminably. But instead they made a prototype and they took this prototype to Francis Maud and then Francis Maud took it to the other ministers and everyone's like, ooh, this looks exciting, this looks good. And they could see just by like using it because it was on the internet, they could use it and they could see how different it was from what they currently had and how much better it was in a way that they would never have been able to have understood from a report or from a PowerPoint deck. And the, 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 the fact that the team at the very beginning took this approach, I think is probably the reason that GovUK and GDS exists today. The fact that they made the thing, made a kind of a shiny thing, like that big picture was never going to get through to live, right? Never but they kind of needed a little bit of shiny to get people excited by it, and, and that worked. And so they got approval from this to do the beta, and then they got approval at the end of the beta to go live, and then GovUK was a thing. Um, and, and that's, that's we, we keep working that way in everything that we do all of the time. Almost always, one of the first things we do is kind of make a prototype of the ideas that we have. Because there's something about making the prototype that makes something that seems impossible suddenly seem like it might be attainable. You could actually do it. And it makes things that seem terrifying when you really think them through seem really exciting and like you want it. Um, 
And I also, you know, I, th I think this is incredibly true now. We don't need to spend time in meetings arguing about what we're going to do. We can just, like, make it and try it out. And, and, you know, if you're in a meeting with somebody who's got a crazy, stupid idea, there's nothing like actually making it and then maybe putting it in front of some end users and letting them see for themselves exactly how and why that's a crazy, stupid idea. That's a much better way to spend your time than to sit around arguing in, a, in an abstract way. So I'm, I really, you know, I think let's spend less time arguing in meetings. If people have got crazy ideas, let's make them and prove that they're crazy. And if we've got awesome ideas, let's make them and show that they're awesome. <coughs> but wireframes don't count. So this is where the Axure people start trolling me very badly, but I have never seen an organization get excited and motivated by pretend prototypes in the same way that they do with something that actually lives on the internet and is made of HTML. I don't know, I've got some theories as to why that's true, but you know, if you don't believe me, try it for yourself. There is a, there is a big difference. On top of that, you get loads of other benefits from prototyping your ideas in code rather than sitting in a corner with your headphones on making Azure stuff. Um, so try it and you'll get all of the added benefits that come with working in this way and you can thank me later. So that's point one, show don't tell. Point two, ask for less. So I work with a guy who is probably one of the grumpiest people that I know, but thankfully he's also very clever. And I'm gonna let him introduce this, except when he says planner, I want you to kind of replace it with whatever your job is, so designer, UX person, developer. What's the most important, what are the most important skills for a planner to have then? Um, I actually think the, the most important thing a planner can do is get people to do stuff, because that is the largest problem for all organizations, is people don't do anything. So you're sort of taught as a planner that, that, your, that your skills are to do with you know, strategy and cleverness and devising original ideas and things, all of which is useless if no one does anything. So you start to realize that your job is to, to devise strategies that will get people to do stuff. Um, so as a very junior planner, your job is maybe to get a creative team to do something. And as you, you know, and then maybe your job becomes getting a hold an account to do something. And as you get, basically, as you get more senior, your job is to get larger amounts of people to do something. Um, so eventually, you end up being a person who gets multinational corporations to do something. I think a lot of the time, it doesn't matter what, just, it just something. <laughs> is kind of the, the challenge. That's Russell Davies. <laughs> He's a joy to work with. Um, <clears throat> but, but he speaks the truth, right? I, I don't know what it's like where you are, but certainly places that I've been, you know, you can, you can walk into an organization with pearls of wisdom and the best strategy ever. I mean, we've all got portfolios, don't we, of brilliant ideas that were never executed. And I think... That to me is, you know, we really need to get out of this mentality that our job is to come up with like the ultimate idea and it's, you know, and it's, it's a tragedy that's beyond our control that nothing ever happens with that. I think we need to own the responsibility to come up with ideas and strategies that can actually come into the world, that, that organizations can actually execute and get done. If you've got young kids, you guys all still look like you might be young kids. Anyone got kids? 
Yeah, okay. So you know then, don't you, how early on in life we start practicing our obstructive and delaying tactics, right? So just picture putting a five-year-old to bed, right? So this is how much experience your managers have of saying no or not yet, except instead of having straight-up tantrums, they have business cases and reports and processes and stuff that you have to follow. This is just like advanced ways of, of avoiding the thing that we really don't want to do. Instead of going to bed, now it's making big, brave decisions. So if you want to get stuff done, you need to work out how to ask for stuff that's more difficult to say no to. And, and this tends to be about kind of simplifying things quite a lot. So you need to sort of work out how can you ask for things that are smaller, that are more logical, that, are, that feel less scary. And I don't think that this means that you have to stop having your big dreams and your big visions about what the future should look like. Um, but just be careful about who you talk to about those dreams. Like, don't go talking to your, your you know, the, the people who have to approve this stuff about those enormous dreams. Because big dreams are, like, brilliant in theory, but if you're the person who has to approve them, they're terrifying. Really, really scary. So I, I'm kind of always thinking about, you know, you have big dreams, but you also need to, like, work out how to dream in increments. And for us, this means asking for an alpha. So, you know, this is, like, kind of like an MVP type thing. I don't really like MVP. But it's the, f the smallest thing that you can ask for that will get you on the road, that will get you started, and give you the, the ability to measure whether or not it's a good idea and it's going to work. Um, so by measuring really small things, then you can show success. And, and senior people like to gravitate. Well, everyone gravitates towards success, right? So if you've got graphs that are going up, if you can show that your small thing is doing really well, then you can kind of let management start to make the logical connections between the small thing and your big dream. And, you know, as hard as it is, if you let them own it, it will actually happen. So you've got to sort of think about the path between, you know, what can I do to actually just make this a thing? If, if, if something starts to exist at all, then the likelihood that it can turn into something big and great is huge, way more than if you've got like a massive deck of wireframes. So for me, the big change that I'm trying to make in government right now is to get government to do more user research. That's the team that I look after at GovUK. And so for this, this means that we want to we want to make it just like a really regular practice that teams that are developing policies and services, digital services in government, are putting their stuff in front of real end users on a really regular basis and learning quickly from from actually directly the people who the service is designed for, whether or not it's working, whether or not it's a good idea, whether or not it's executed well or poorly. Um, this is not something the government has done a lot of traditionally. They might outsource a bit of usability testing right at the far end of the project, but often that gets cut because of budget and time and all of that kind of thing. So it's, we're asking government to change its behavior. And we've done that by asking for really simple, clear things. People are good at, at sort of following basic processes. So if you give them like a simple thing to do, they do this, they, you'll be amazed how often they do just go and do it, if it's simple enough. So the, ask, the, the one big ask that we have is do research in every sprint, right? And when you're doing it, just get five people in a usability lab, do one-on-ones, talk to them a little bit about the service, and then watch them do some tasks, do some basic usability. If you know anything about user research, you will probably look at this game, well, that's great for some things, but that's not great for everything. And I completely agree with you. But if we stay away from that and we just give them this, they will start doing this. 
And they will get the infrastructure and they will get the skills that they need to be able to look at this and go, you know what, Lisa, you gave us some really basic advice. Why didn't you tell you we should be doing this and this and this and this? And I'm like, yeah, you're right. You know, you guys are right. You should definitely go and do that more sophisticated stuff. And then they, they own that. But also, if I'd have asked them to do the hard stuff first, they would never have done anything. They would have had to have get a committee and like made a white paper or something like that. So you need, to, you need to ask for stuff that is so simple that you can't write a paper about it or have a meeting about it. You just kind of start doing it. And so this has been like a real kind of mindset change for me lately. I think if you get a bunch of, you know, you get a designer and a, and a, and a UX person, a researcher in a room and go, so, you know, here's the problem. What are we going to do? Almost invariably, the first thing that all of them will say is, well, it depends. And that's because it does depend, like the context of stuff and, and the range of tools that we have, the ways that we can approach things, they're, they're diverse and nuanced. And, you know, as people who know what we're doing, we understand the complexity of how you match solution to, to problem. Um, but if you say that to people who aren't like us, they just freeze, right? It, it becomes complex. And the minute that things get complex, everything gets paralyzed and you have to have a meeting or, or form a committee or do something like that. So if you, if you kind of kill it depends from your vocabulary, at least in the early stages when you're trying to get change made, you will actually get lots more stuff done. So we have a, a few of these little kind of simple asks that we have. This is another one. Get your exposure hours. Are you familiar with Jared Spool's exposure hours? So this is the idea that he did a study, his, his team did a study to try to work out why can some teams design really good stuff and some teams who look like they should be able to design good stuff just can't. Um, what's, what's the difference? Is it because they do agile or waterfall? Is it because they've got loads of senior designers or, or a mix of senior and junior? Is it like, what, is it because they've got loads of money or loads of time? What's the thing that makes the difference? And the thing that, that made the most difference far and away was whether or not everybody in the organization from senior people all the way through got to actually watch real people, their real customers using their actual product for at least two hours every six weeks. That was the thing that made the difference. So this is the ask that we have to our teams. We basically say, you know, if you don't get two hours every six weeks of coming and watching real people in, in the research that's happening in every sprint, you're letting the team down, right? You're, you're stopping us from being able to reach our full potential around developing, designing a great service. Um, and that's really important because I, I believe that this is true. Um, and we need to get away from this, this idea that going and watching research is, is kind of a jolly. It's something that you do if you don't have much on, and then you sort of sit there in the darkened room and eat sweets. That's, that's, you know, that's what most people think about when they think about watching research. So we need to turn it into a job. We need to turn it into like a legitimate thing that people are expected to do, and, and, and it's measured as to whether or not they do it. And so you know, we, we make this really simple ask, and I think this is asking for a thing that if people start doing it, will start to make a tremendous difference really quickly. How many of you have seen a real end user using your product or service in the last six weeks? That's not very impressive. So because I can, I, I want to show you something that we see really, really often that maybe you haven't seen so much of. Um, when we do our user research, we ask the people who participate to sign a consent form that says that we can show it to any reasonable audience. And we talk to them a lot and basically say, you know, we're trying to fix government and fix all this thing. Are you happy for us to show it to people? So I'm going to show you a clip now of somebody who's filling out a form. She's 30, early 30s. She works in an office. Um, so she's probably 
somebody who would be using your product, um, <coughs> you need to be respectful. This person has given up her time to come in and help us fix the internet. So just bear that in mind as you're watching. <laughs> the person who's with her is her boyfriend. Why wouldn't it say that? If you just click on the 26. I hope you're them. laughing because you're uncomfortable, not because, because you think that this so is if you fine. Know, if you click on the arrow. Stop. Okay. Yeah, just click on the click on the date. And you're gonna click on the month. Yeah. But if you just click on it. What do you mean? I did click on click it. on click on May, yeah. Let's come back to month. Let's click on it. <laughs> Clicking on it. With the arrow. <laughs> click on it. This is why I don't do this at work at home. You got into a different oh, day. Um, so how many of you got like long select boxes in your product anywhere? Because this, I'm not showing you this because this is a one-off. I'm showing you this because we see this all the time. And we have, like, we have this idea of a digital literacy scale. You don't have to be very far down the digital literacy scale for long select boxes to become a real problem for people. Um, if we'd have made the, that date of birth just text fields and we were doing the validation, so we were doing the hard work to make it simple, which is one of the GDS design principles, she would have flown through that with no trouble at all. But because we chose to put in long select boxes, she was basically excluded from using this service by herself. And she walked away from this feeling utterly humiliated, which is not a feeling that I am pleased to give an end user when they're just trying to put in their date of birth, for heaven's sakes. And the thing that kills me is that we've known about this stuff for a long time. So this is an article that somebody who you've probably heard of wrote in 2000. Well, you get so carried away, you know, getting all excited about the possibilities of, of you know, design. And we let basic problems just go by and, 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 and not solve them. And these, these are actually where the really interesting design challenges are for me. Uh, and if you dig into it and try and solve some of these things, you know, get beyond just going, oh, well, you know, what else could we possibly use? As designers, that's exactly the challenge that you should be embracing. Don't just go on a select box. Um, if, if you believe a front-end developer more than you believe me, go and see the talk that Alice Bartlett did called Burn Your Select Tags, which is available on YouTube. Um, and she will talk even more about it. And this is just one, this is just one thing. There are loads and loads of things that we take completely for granted because we just hang out with people like us all the time. I'm really fortunate that in my job, I'm kind of like paid to reach out to like people who are not like us. And there are loads, there are more of them than there are of us. So if we actually really care about end users, we need to kind of like get beyond ourselves a little bit, go and see what it's like. So... This is another one that we ask for all of the time. These are like just the simple behavior changes. I'm going to finish ranting about select tags for now, but you can see me later if you want more. Um, <coughs> this is not just about user research. I'm using examples from user research because I want to show you select tag clips. Um, but for you, I mean, the question is, what are the behaviors that you want to change? And what are the simple, actionable things that are almost too hard to not start doing that are going to get people on the path 
to having the kind of behaviors, the kind of understandings that you want them to have. So this is like you know, the little human design exercise. So that's two. What's that one? Ask for less. Three, change the language of the organization. So this is where the IA, the information architect in me, comes out and we start getting like properly pedantic. Um, so for me, this is all about being really thoughtful about the words that you use. Don't know if you know anything about linguistic analysis. It's really cool. So Jill Arau is a, a, a linguistic analyst, an analyst? <laughs> English. Um, and so what she does is she goes into organizations and she, she looks at the way that they talk about themselves. So all of the literature that they, that they face out to the world, she does an analysis of that. And then she analyzes all, like, all the way that they talk within the organization. So what's in their internal documents? What do they call things? What do they say when they're in meetings? And she can look at the gap between the two. And as you can probably imagine, there's often a huge gap between what companies say they believe in and then the way that they actually behave. Um, I think this is really kind of interesting. So an example would be, if you think about a company who talks about requirements and requirement gathering all of the time, just think about the kinds of people that you picture working for that kind of an organization, what they think is important, what kind of documents they would make, what kind of presentations they would make, and then think about a company that talks about user needs. And what are the kinds of things that, that they might believe in and that they might do? And what kind of things would you see on their walls? What kind of things would they present that they would be proud of? Um, they're kind of, in a way, they're kind of the same thing. Like They're kind of really just two different ways of talking about the list of things that you're going to do. But the way that you talk about them tells you so much about the priorities and the values of the organizations that, that are using that language. So GDS... We're a user needs kind of organization. That's at the heart of what we do all of the time. This is Liam Maxwell. He's the CTO for the whole of government. And he talks about user needs so much that he had to get a special thing printed for his phone so he just hold it up and like save his breath. Um, and and he's, like, he's, he's like a hardware guy. He's interested in like hosting and you know, devices and, and, you know, and big, you know, te big technology infrastructure. He's not even like kind of one of you cool design types. He would kill me for saying that. Um, <clears throat> but if you look at the things that we do and the things that we use, you will see that user needs is not just something that we talk about when we talk at conferences and, and write about what we do. It's in, it's in the working material that we use. So these are our design principles. Our number one design principle is to start with needs, user needs, not government needs. Sadly, we still have to specify that. Um, and we have a, a, a service assessment that we, the service standard that we use to, it's got 26 points. Services that want to go live have to come in and pass these 26 points that cover all kinds of things from, you know, are you open sourcing whatever you can open source? Is it secure? Is people's data being protected? All that kind of stuff. But the number one in that, in that list of 26 criteria is, do you understand user needs? Have you done research that proves that you actually know who your users are and what they're trying to do? We make little things and put them on the walls to remind us of who we're doing this for. In our, um, in our methodology, the very first thing at the very beginning is user needs. So it's in all of the things that we reference all the time. And if you walk into Aviation House in London, where we are based, you could walk around for like less than five minutes and you will hear somebody talking about user needs in the actual practice of doing their work. 
every time that happens, it's just a little reminder of the things that we believe in and of the, of the belief that we have that our users are the most important thing and, and that, that meeting their needs is, is what we are here to do, which is a big turnaround from the way of thinking that we had kind of in, in the old way of doing things. And we kind of extend this into sort of more contentious fields as well. So we are very careful about the way that we use the term user experience. We've got designers, that's Ben who leads the design team, we've got researchers, that's me, um, and we work together and we do user-centered design. Uh, because for us, the big UX challenges aren't really, despite the fact that you know, we still do long selects sometimes, the big challenges aren't in designing the form and the content and, and designing the web pages. The big UX challenges for us come from policy and they come from security, or they come from fraud prevention, or they come from crazy people saying that we're going to do something in a ridiculously short period of time. Like That's where the proper UX challenges come from. So if we really believe that, you can't just interface away bad policy, and you believe that user experience is the responsibility of the entire team, then you can't have a guy who's sitting over there who's the UX guy. You can't have a team of a few people who are the UX team. If you really believe it, then you have to use words that actually support what you believe. This is very annoying because when I want to try and recruit somebody on Twitter, if I say, I want an interaction designer, everyone just goes, <laughs> But if I say, I want a UX designer, like, they're everywhere. Um, so, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of fighting a, a bit of an uphill battle against the industry. But for us, it's really important. And even the fact that it is a little bit awkward means that when we have to think about what we call that guy over there, it reminds us that we don't call that UX because UX is the responsibility of the entire team and our big UX challenges come from policy. Every time you have to like correct yourself, you remind yourself of what you believe in. Um, and if you're in an, an environment where you're trying to make significant cultural change, those little daily reminders that loads of people can have are really important at, at shifting the value system. So the other one that people get really annoyed at me is this one, which is user testing. I hate it when people say user testing. We don't test users, right? We do usability testing, we do user research. We, we're testing our designs, we're testing our ideas. The users are always right, right? We're the ones who need to get it right. And Again, you know, it's for you guys, you probably know this. It probably doesn't, for you, it probably doesn't matter. But if you're working in an environment like I'm in, which is like in government, where they come from like a law enforcing mentality, right? Which is this whole thing of like, we just make the rules. You don't have to like them. You just got to do it. Or even worse, you get people who are like, well, we're going to give them money. We're going to give them benefits. So they should work for it. Right, this, this, this is part of the old culture. This is what we want to shift. So every time they say user testing, they're kind of enforcing their whole, you don't have to like it, you just have to do it. And every time we say it's not user testing, it's usability testing, we take the responsibility for making sure that it's a good experience for our users. So it's, you know, they're, they're little tiny things. They might not seem like they matter, but if you do make them a thing and they happen at little small points every day, over time, it, 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 it does actually make a shift. So I would suggest to you that you just have a think about the way that you use words and think about what words tell you about what you and your organization believe in. This is stuff that you can start doing today for free. There are not many other things, you know, there, there are not many other things that are so easy that can start to make a difference. This is my last one. Make your job mostly about communications. 
So when I'm talking about this, what I'm talking about is internal communications. So um, whatever, whatever your job is, if it's a researcher or if it's a designer or if it's a front-end developer, what I'm suggesting is that you spend a little bit less time doing what you're officially paid to do and more time talking about that and sharing that with the rest of your team. One of the things that, um, that we kind of realized, we, we started being able to do loads of user research you know, through the use of the asking for simple things. And you know, we, people asked for research. We started doing loads of research. And we were like, yeah, brilliant. Lots of research is happening. This is fantastic. Um, and then we got to the point where we could start to moan about the fact that people weren't paying enough attention to it. Why don't they know what we're doing? Why aren't they doing stuff like based on what we're learning? Why are they not more interested? Why don't they know we know this stuff? Why don't they know this stuff? I feel like I'm, you know, I presented it and show and tell, right? Everybody should know it. Um, and I, and you get oh god, seriously? Thanks, Apple. Um, you get to a point where you can either sort of sit around and moan about that a lot and go, oh, you know, the way we are such victims, you know, if, if everybody cared about us more, then everything would be better. Or you can kind of take a more proactive approach to that and say, it's our responsibility to make sure that people know. So if they don't know, it's our job. We need to make a better user experience for them and make sure that we're communicating to them in a way that actually gets across the key things that they need to know. So we started thinking about our job as being kind of about partly doing research, but also having a big comms component to it as well. And once we started thinking about that, I was like, I just wrote this little test in my head. And I'm thinking, you know, think about the parts of your organization that are a bit dysfunctional or toxic. And if the only thing that you did was to improve the communication there, how much of the problem would go away? And it's not going to be all of the problem. But in, in a lot of the cases that I came up with, thinking about different challenges that we have, it would make a lot of the problem go away. And it would make your ability to solve the problem get a, a lot more within reach. And I think loads of stuff that goes wrong has got to do with the fact that we spend lots of time doing our really busy work and not enough time thinking about how we can effectively communicate that to other people. So we write this whole blog post about, you know, what do we do when we're not researching? Because we say to people, you need, you need a researcher in your team. And everyone's like, well, yeah, but they're only doing research a couple of days a week. What are they going to do? Sit around and twiddle their thumbs the rest of the time. And what we worked out by kind of going through the list of things that we were doing if we were going to be really effective is that actually research was about 30% of the work. And 70% of the work, most of that was about making sure that people understood what we'd found in the research and they knew how to apply it and they were actually applying it. And if we didn't put more effort into communicating the research, we might as well not do the research at all. And I think this is exactly the same for design as well. I mean, Mike Montero writes a lot about how actually the most important skill that a designer has is the way that they present their design. You know, it's not the, the, the design doesn't sell itself. That you need to actually be able to effectively do that. So now we have like this whole content communication strategy for our research team that probably won't make much sense to you, but makes heaps of sense to us, and has completely changed the way that we think about how we capture information and tell stories and make sure that information gets out into the team. Um, so the, the learning for this has been that you need to, you, you, you need to be really proactive about planning how you're going to do communication. It, it doesn't just happen. You can't just go 
oh, you know, um, we, we're going to communicate better from now on. You actually have to sit down and put it in your schedule. You need to like block days out to be able to do this. You need to put it into people's KPIs. So it needs to be something that people are measured on as doing better or worse. There needs to be an incentive for them to do this well. Um, and it needs to be required. It's not a nice to have. It's absolutely necessary that we get much better at communicating what we're doing and inviting our teams into understanding why we're doing things the way that we're doing and what we're learning as a result of that. So it needs to be something that's considered to be really important within your organization. So they are my four things. Show, don't tell, ask for less, change your language, and plan to do more comms. And we do all of this because then we can actually get people working on stuff, right? Get people working on stuff that's going to put better things into the world. So that is why our strategy is delivery. And that's me. Thank you very much. I think I get to do some Q&A now if you have any cues. This is the scariest part of the talk, I reckon. <laughs> well, thank you, uh, first of all, for an excellent talk. Um, I have a question about your second point, ask for less. Um, uh, how do you prevent um, making elephants in the room if you're asking for less things? It could be big things that should be tackled, and well, there are the elephants in the room. How do you prevent those? Preventing elephants in the room of the big things that need to be tackled. Yes, yes. I think I think it's about I think it's about approaching things on a roadmap, right? So it's 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 not about it's not about only doing the small things, but it's about doing the first thing on the way to tackling the big thing, but not trying to do it as a huge thing. Like, so get the elephant and breaking it down into bite-sized pieces, basically, yeah? Who am I looking at? Hi, thank you for your excellent presentation. Um, how do you get people to, um, um, to pay for this 70% uh, of uh, communication? How do we get them to pay for it? The organizations. We just tell them that if they don't do it, they're wasting their money on research. Yeah, but lots of organizations aren't that far yet. <laughs> yeah, well, you just, I think the thing that I've learned in my, so, so we've gone from when I first started, we had like literally a small handful, but not, not using all the fingers. That's how many researchers we had pretty much in the whole of government, user researchers, lots of marketing people and, and market researchers and insight managers and people who don't actually do research, but very few actual researchers. Um, and so we just kind of, we just sort of said what we needed. Do this, do this, do this, um, and we we asked for we asked for what we wanted. We didn't try to go. Well, they'll never give us that, so we'll you know, we'll ask for less. And then by asking for less, we end up in a place where we can't actually deliver anything particularly useful. So then we can never make the case to go up. So we just pitched for what we actually needed, um, and and made the ask really really clear. And um, we're we're very fortunate in that we've always set out our stall on user needs. But lots of companies do say how much they care about their users. So we say, you know, if you care about these your users, this is what you need to do. This is what we need. Please, may we have it? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, think, I think loads of people get into trouble by doing the negotiation before they actually get to the table, right? 
So people go, well, they'll never give us that many researchers. So I'll ask, instead of asking for the eight that I really need, I'll ask for three. And then you end up in this situation where they give you your three, but you're ineffective because you don't have enough. So you'll never get to eight because you can't do a good job with three. This is completely hypothetical numbers. Um, and so, yeah, so this has been like a thing for me. It's like, actually, just ask for what you want. And then once, then, then start negotiating. But don't do negotiating before you've even told people what you actually need. Commercial organizations make loads of money out of this. This is why you do this, is to make more money, to waste less money, and to make more money. We can, by doing this work, you know, I do it for the good of the citizens of the UK, but, you know, you can do it for profit. <laughs> oh, I love my job. <laughs> Anybody? Hi, Liza. Hi. Um, what do you do, so you're talking about kind of comms and getting user researchers to communicate better. Do you do anything inside the GDS to help people to listen better and communicate better as a team? <coughs> I don't know what you can do to make people listen better except for you to... The I, so I think the best thing that I can do is to focus on the comms and to try... With, so when, we, when we think about comms, we, we go back to the user need things, right? But our users are now internal people. What are the needs of the people in our team? What's going on for them? What seems to work for them? How can we design stuff that's more... That's, that, that helps them get things better. So, um, so this is why we've got our content strategy, is that you know, we've got the three parts to it, which is empathy. So people love stories. People love stories. So we need to spend time now. We, we do now spend time crafting stories about people that we've met and sending them out like little fairy tales um, and, and with pictures and all that kind of thing. And, and it's, it's, you know, people can't help but read that stuff. And it's really different to what we would usually do as research deliverables. But it gets people to keep reading little stories regularly of people that are like nothing like them at all. And so people, it, 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 it's, a, it's, it's a little strategy that, that works with the fact that as human beings we like stories and we like to like eavesdrop into people's lives and all that kind of thing. But by doing that really regularly, we achieve our goal, which is to keep sending this message that the rest of the world is not like us. You know, we are a strange monoculture of digital people. The rest of the world is really, really different, and they're not the weird ones. We're the weird ones. So you kind of you, that, that's, we're trying to sort of match up what we know about the way that our teams behave and what they will pay attention to, and to craft the way that we communicate to them so that they it's easier for them and and they, and they want to actually take it in. And since we've started doing that, people are like, you really should do more of these stories about people. And we're like, yeah, you're right. We totally should. So you know, it's yeah, it's it's you have to in a way you sort of think about it like product market fit. How do you design a product that's going to work for your audience? Your audience is your internal team. So it's it's another yet another little design challenge. No, that's cool. Um, there's actually on the hashtag housing day at the moment. There's a load of housing associations doing exactly that, writing little stories about the people who Great. Uh, live it. So it's worth a look for anyone who's interested. Excellent. Cut. Oh, that's me. I'm finished. <laughs> Thank you very much.